Welcome to Machine Learning. This week, just a recap of uh, things that I've been thinking about. Um, I was able to get nine more days of data cap and I've been spending a lot of time thinking about customer churn. One of the interesting things about customer churn is trying to figure out what features are critical to making decisions on customer churn. And uh, one of the interesting things is how you can use a decision classifier to tell you what features the system trains on to make a decision. So the way you can do that is there's a library called Graphics, uh, G-R-A-P-H-V-I-Z. And um, what that will do is it'll show you your decision nodes. So it'll show you in one color the decision nodes that lead to churn that where the customer saves and churn where the customer goes. Then you can see which features contributed to that decision. Now it's interesting because you go through the course and um, one of the things that you learn is that uh, decision trees have problems with overfitting. Where as logistic regression is based on odds. So what, what you're trying to figure out with logistic regression is you can use uh, L2 regularization but you have to know what the coefficient for C is and uh, the way you find that coefficient is you iterate over various coefficients for C and then you measure uh, three things accuracy precision and recall and um, so you're comparing the test data with the predicted uh, predictions or you're looking at your train data and uh, the predictions on the train data and so combining the, the two um, gives you an idea of, of which uh, which coefficient for C is going to give you the best accuracy. So you can put that into a, you can put that the results into a list and then when you're done uh, display out the list and look at which coefficients give you the best recall um, and the best precision or the best uh, accuracy, and I, from what I could see, they they focused on recall, and that is getting the uh, getting more of the right answer than not. So the recall would be if you got uh, say. 50% recall 
if your recall is improving, then you use that coefficient for your C value. And pretty much, that's a, you know the extent of what you can do with logistic regression because it's all based on probability. So it's the log of B over the probability divided by one minus the probability. And that, that gives you your log. So um, you can use the coefficients to get the slope and the intercept. And the slope and intercept of the, using those coefficients will tell you the, um, the outcome. And so one thing that I've been thinking about is now that I've spent a little bit of time with logistic regression, the most popular algorithm on the market, um, I'm starting to think that I can write a code generator that would take the CSV, so you give it a CSV, and it'll analyze that CSV, it'll analyze the features, it'll tell you what the C constant should be, it'll do a search CV, it'll do your lasso, it'll do, uh, you can do your uh, feature reduction, and it'll plot out some graphs. Maybe the only thing you need to know, it all he needs to know is if it's is going to be a, a binary um, case or if it's going to be like a category cross-entropy case. Those are be the two cases. So in those in that situation, there'd be a lot of data transformation. Uh, you'd want to set up your dummies, or you could use this as, as category. And I, and I preferred use just using as category. But, um, yeah, so you could have multiple outputs. Um, and it's just really amazing how far logistic regression can go. Because, you know, you, you're, you're thinking like, well, let's, let's just move this to a, a deep learning network and we'll, it'll get the features find those features in the hidden layer and you'll get better results. But uh, logistic regression is just so simple to set up. Once you get your data uh, transformed and you figure out your feature engineering, it just works. And so I, I really like it. I think it's that's one reason why it's so popular. And the other reason is it matches up really close with statistics. You can you do your statistical methods and you can get really close to the results of your logistic regression because it's all based on probability and logarithms. So one of the things also I studied this week was feature engineering and, and uh, that was probably one of the best courses that I completed on Datacamp. I uh, really enjoyed that. And one of the things that I liked is we were analyzing Stack Overflow and uh, profiles, uh, developer profiles, and I learned a lot about the millennials and work behavior and also the baby boomers. So there's the baby boomers mixed with the millennials. And uh, 
most of the developers, I you know, I just kind of like got rid of the outlier, so I used a, a mean and standard deviation, and then I didn't, you know, I didn't want to look at the the last five percent. So, you know, you have you stratify standard deviation. You want what sixty eight percent in there. Standard deviation two, you want ninety five, and then standard deviation three, you have the the remaining five percent and uh, of your population, and so. Um, just looked at the demographics of uh, age and work hours and stratified that according to you know the two standard the two standard deviation of uh, less than equal to two and uh, found some interesting things like uh, one of the things I found that was interesting is most developers despite how old they are whatever age are working between 40 to 60 hours a week no one's working 90 hours a week and if you are working 90 hours a week you're outside the norm uh, and I think there was like 53,000 developers in this population that I was looking at but uh, then I used uh, a function called QCut and I really like that because it works like a histogram you can uh, set your ranges that you want to stratify your data and QCut will uh, uh, create the bins for that, those, that stratification and then you can display it. And so, you know, I looked at things like, uh, you know, where the developers are from, uh, what type of, what, what, what were the major languages? And uh, it was interesting because I was I've been looking at Dart versus Go, and it really looks like Dart is starting to gain momentum over Go. Uh, both of them are, are starting to accelerate, but the, you know the king of programming is definitely JavaScript, HTML, CSS, jQuery. Now the bulk of the work that's being done out there is in, in those languages, and then you have. C Sharp and Java and uh, C++ in the middle layers. But you really can see the acceleration of Dart. And I re the reason I think uh, that is the case is because it's, it's a widget-based, it's object-oriented, uh, entry level to programming is greatly reduced, it's open source, and uh, you can create a great product that's cross-platform. A lot of startup companies are using Flutter because it uh, reduces the cost to get their product out the door. And uh, they can capitalize on specific markets quicker. And so I, you know, I really like what I'm seeing in that market. And I think that uh, Microsoft, uh, Apple, somewhat greedy because they're, you know, they're charging lots of money for development tools. Their languages are extremely complex, requiring lots of training. You know, you, if you compare Swift uh, to Flutter, still requires lots of knowledge and lots of training. 
You have to understand the philosophy of the environment. You have to understand the attributes of the classes, how to do different things. So there's lots of uh, market for training. And people are not migrating towards just finding a YouTube and watching it and watching thousands of YouTubes and trying to figure out how to do their work. They're migrating towards individuals who know how to get the work done already, who are live streaming and explaining how to get how to do different procedures. And then the users are asking these experts how to do different things and then the experts are uh, responding with YouTubes based on questions from their customers or consumers. And so they're selling things like books, pro training programs, and they're online answering questions directly with the users as they're trying to figure out what the curriculum is saying. Now I did I did something like that when I was working with Codebase to implement my token-based security and uh, talked to the CTO and he was really helpful. We, we collaborated on a couple of uh, questions and he was, you know, he jumped right in there, explained how to do different things, uh, answered some of my questions that I had. And then over time, he started deferring me to the online coursework. And I went through the online coursework and it was understandable. I tried the steps and got verifiable results and I was happy. So you have a, they had a, articles on how to set up Angular and also articles on how to set up your .NET Core, and uh, it, fit, it filled a missing link that Microsoft had created by introducing the uh, .NET Core 3.1. And so there's lots of companies that are um, meeting customer needs and getting good reputations strong number of followers and so they're very active publishing and explaining and have actually created a market by helping other developers learn how to develop in these complex networks same thing goes for swift c sharp javascript angular these are not uh, drag and drop languages the Flutter is somewhat different. It it has components. You you, uh, you utilize those components, and uh, it has kind of a visual environment for development because you you can have hot reload. So while you make a change, you do hot reload. You can see the effect. And uh, the code base comprehension is less because they they use widgets and a lot of stuff is kind of pre-built with default parameters and you can template a lot of the, the coding so it's 
in my mind, is really open now to teaching AI how to do these tasks. So you could give natural language commands to, to let's say, TensorFlow using some sort of semantic network. And instead of applying it to a search algorithm, apply it to code generator. So it code generates, uh, let's say you're, you're dealing with a grid, you can code generate your grid, then you can code generate your, your uh, business logic object component. And then you could code generate the streaming, data streaming. Uh, and then you can connect the web API to the, the data stream. And see, these, uh, this level of functionality should be able to be understood by the machine. And these, these uh, components can be built and connected. And so development can be done in a more rapid way. You can even, if you don't want to use voice because you're working in an environment where you have lots of people around you, then you have a command line. Code generation has to be the future because things need to be seamless, which you can see with uh, Dart and uh, Flutter that the widgets do make a seamless integration into the uh, code. And a lot of the mechanisms then use the widget and, know, and it knows what to do with it. For example, if you put an expand in, you know, against a, a column, it's going to expand to the full width of the screen. And then you can also do flex. And you can partition off portions of the screen widths. So you could do... Um, If it, let's say it's uh, 20 or 10, you want to break it like a, you know, like a, a Flexbox 12, you say 12, or going across the screen, then you could have it break it up into three, 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 four, four units of three. So evenly spaced in four, four, four partitions. Um, Well, going back to you know this feature engineering, I, I liked it because one other thing that they showed is how to use a mask, and uh, that's that feature is something that you would think would be very uh, fundamental. That'd be one of the first things that you taught is how to do a mask. But uh, I've been working in. Python for about six months, and I didn't know how to do a mask. And so when I, I, I learned how they were using that to analyze the data, uh, I found that really remarkable. So one way you can use a mask is uh, you set up your filter on your your data frame column or columns, one or plural. And the way you do plural filters is you add prints around each filter and put an ampersand in between. Okay. Um, and then when you have your data frame and you want to select only those items from the mask, 
you would say data frame, your column in brackets, and then you'd put your mask in brackets. And that has the effect of filtering only those items, and then you can do your group by and your aggregation. Super cool. Very easy to do. And you can even do the, you can even set, uh, let's say if you want to create a, a, a new columns that uh, are putting the values of the forced values in, you can do that where you can just set the, the equal to some value in that new column. columns then would, would receive that value. Really like that feature, used it a lot right away on the Stack Overflow to partition and aggregate, and it made it really easy. I mean, it's uh, one of the things that's difficult to understand on the group by is you don't, I, I get the feeling with Python, you don't want to try to write really complex chaining Rather, the better way to do this would be to apply a mask and then set the values. And then uh, now you can have a visual in your data frame of what, what uh, rows match those filters. And then apply aggregation against those new columns doing things like counts or uh, occurrences and you know it's I, I think it's very possible to do it with just group buys and, and maybe applies and different things like that where you're transforming and group aggregating and stuff like that in one one uh, line but from what I could see when you're doing feature extraction you don't want it to do it that way uh, the main reason is because you've got to do a lot of verification and you want that verification to be visual. And so you want it to have some checks and checks along the way when you're, as you're transforming your data. Um, one of the other things that uh, was important in the feature uh, was how to remove unwanted characters. You do that with regular expressions. So you can use the dot replace uh, method. And uh, then you can do uh, inclusion or exclusion. And the way you do exclusion is with the hat marker. So you can say bracket, hat marker, A through Z, small, A through Z, large, capitalized. And that would say remove all non-alpha numeric. And you can go 0, 1 through 0, too, if you want to. Uh, let's see, 0 through 9, sorry, 0 through 9. And that would say remove all non-alphanumeric characters. And then you could also do remove commas, remove uh, dollar signs, if you want to go specific. But you could also just say just remove all non-alphanumeric characters. And then, th then you have the uh, then it returns a the data as an object type and you're, 
if you just use that, then you run into casting problems later. So then you have to do it as of, you could do as of int, um, you could do rounding, you could do float, uh, calculations, and then round it if you wanted to do that. But you need to set it as some sort of data type so that later as you use the data, like for example, uh, with the telecom, analyzing you know, what the monthly charges were, what the yearly charges were, I couldn't do the correlation work until I first did my casting because the data came in and I thought it was a string type and so I couldn't do my, my calculations on it. So then I had to convert that to a uh, float type and then I was able to do my aggregation against it. So, you know, a lot of uh, things, you know, that I'm kind of thinking that, you know, this data transformation is feature engineering. Um, it's kind of the bulk work. It's, it's the heavy lifting down with the data. But if you can get your data all nicely engineered into features so that, you know, it can be consumed by different classifiers, then you're in a win scenario. <clears throat> then also one of the things that uh, we talked about is how, how to deal with missing data. So, you know, you could remove the missing data, you could replace the missing data with averages um, or medians. So the median is, if you have five numbers, it's the middle number. So if I went one, two, three, four, five, it'd probably be, well, I'm guessing maybe the median would be maybe two or three. I'm not sure which one it would take. But um, might, it might take the low number, it might take the high number in the middle. Um, and also you can just replace it with like a number like zero. And then you can look to see where you want to remove columns with an NA. Uh, you can do how and you specify a specific column that if it has any NAs that it's being removed or replaced or filled. And so that kind of like firms up your, your data, makes it stable. So um, there's some models where it has problems with the NAs. And uh, the reason why you don't want to start deleting data sometimes is that you, you can, uh, you know, that, that input might be real critical to your model. So you need that in your model. And then you have to analyze your outliers. And one way to do that is use distribution. Another way to do it is uh, uh, using Seaborn's pair plot, uh, pair plot, and that'll show you correlation maybe between the features. You look to see visually if there's any uh, features that might correlate, and then you can do scatter plots against uh, those features that seem to correlate, and then kind of get a gives you a feel for how your data is interacting with with each other. And then you can use box plot. And the reason why box plot is so important is uh, box plot it, 
divides the data into the top 25 uh, percentile and the pop, I mean, the 25 percentile and the 75 percentile of, around the mean. And then it looks at whether or not you have you have a maximum and a minimum uh, quartel, and then it's looking to see if you have any outliers. And that's what we call a machine learning. That's weird. Okay, so when you want to identify things that are weird, uh, they they reside up in probably in that third standard deviation, which is in your top five percent. And those are the kind of things that you want to take, pay attention to because they're way out of the norm. And uh, it might indicate that there was bad data entered. Uh, maybe there was some conversions didn't happen correctly. Uh, procedures were done incorrectly. Or it's just, it's just maybe the user put it in was able to put in a weird number and they there was no constraints on the ranges on the number and they put in this huge number. Like if there's a, someone who's a thousand years old. Obviously that data you don't want to include it because that's going to skew your predictions. Um, so so you want to kind of ignore that and you can and you can you can remove those uh, either by standard deviation, quartel, Q-cut, uh, filtering. But you can remove those particular uh, values, rows that are, are, ske are skewed like that. And, uh, the, and so the, the box plot is good for identifying on the features if there's outliers. And they're represented as triple dots above the, the, the box plot. And then if you don't want to see the box plot, then you can do an SYM equals, I think it is none. And then I'll just remove, it just, it, it'll just remove the outliers. But it kind of, uh, it kind of shows you how the data is related. And then if, but the, one of the big problems you have is if you start comparing uh, uh, two features together, so you notice that there's correlation, and then you put them both in a box plot. Problem you're going to run into is that uh, the numbers might not be on the same scale. So in order to scale it, there's some different ways that you can do that. You can do max min, and uh, it'll reduce it down to a max min number. You can do standard deviation, reduces it to a number between zero and one. These are these are techniques for what they call normalization. And uh, what you're doing is you're changing the distribution curve. You're making it a normally distributed curve, making it look more Gaussian. And uh, and then when you do the comparisons, then uh, they will compare. To each other, and that's also very important when you're dealing. This feature engineering is very important when you're dealing uh, with uh, uh, Keras or deep learning. You're going to need to put some of the features in a standardization form so that uh, they're not skewing the results.
and it's and the network's able to predict correctly because one set of numbers is not being emphasized more important than other set of features. All right, so that's uh, some of the mechanics, you know, that go into feature engineering. Lot of a uh, lot of thoughtful topics to go over, and you know, I'd suggest looking at the DataCamp course on feature engineering. You, you did a really good job. Um, I also like the one on uh, uh, marketing and customer churn. He did a really good job there. I'm studying the last chapter, which is uh, customer life value. And that one is kind of interesting because what you're trying to do there is predict based on their buying pattern, frequency, uh, average rate of churn, average life of the customer. You're trying to predict how much money you're going to make from that customer in his lifetime based on historical data or knowledge about that customer. And they have different ratios that they apply. They, you could build a cohort matrix. Basically the cohort matrix shows you what the co customer has spent, how frequently they've spent um, accumulatively through the year starting from month one, two, three, four, to 12. And it's kind of like a running total. And so you can just kind of see how that customer's activity is occurring over the year. And uh, when, they're, well, you know, when they start spending. And, uh, and that would then give you an idea uh, momentum-wise if customer is, uh, is you know, an active customer or a customer that's buying periodically or a customer who uh, is a declining purchase customer. And so one of the things that, uh, again, I was saying that was important in the telecom business was, you know, do they have a phone service? Do they have, how long were they in tenureship? What type of contract did they uh, apply with? And those things affect your churn rate. So once you understand and get a predictable churn rate, you could also then uh, use that churn rate to figure out what the customer's the probability of the customer, how much you can, the probability of how much you can make with that customer over his lifetime. Okay, so that's that's valuable information to learn, and uh, so I, I'm going through that coursework right now. Anyway, you know, um, I'll tell you, data science is a uh, if you just go out there and, and memorize formulas and you can retain those formulas, great. But without actual working through projects and, and answering questions and then understanding what those equations are doing, uh, you're gonna be a guy who can talk the talk, but you won't be able to do much of the work. And you need to be able to program in Python and not just dabble in it, but you really need to understand uh, in great depth 
the language and the libraries because you're going to use a lot of them. And that's what I just keep seeing with this, you know, Anaconda and Python is I'm constantly downloading new libraries and installing them and, and using them. And uh, it's kind of amazing that uh, AI has not integrated closer with Python making recommendations and helping with installation and code generating it's like there's such a huge market for that and I think that that market will uh, emerge and you know if you're a developer that's thinking about code generators you know contact me because um, you know I was building some code generators in C sharp and it was greatly reducing my work and uh, but then I wasn't seeing a lot of demand for the C-sharp stuff I was working on so I shifted to Python and I don't see any co really good code generators for Python yet and um, it's a mystery why that doesn't exist so if you're really good at programming and you know you're very good at uh, parsing syntax generation uh, give me a contact and let's you know let's see if we can uh, put collaborate something on a server where you can use natural language uh, request and have it assist and build the different classifier configurations it will save people lots of money and time because what do you find with data science is it stratifies with from people who are very knowledgeable to people who are beginners, but when you, in order to move it to production or use it in production, it has to be very accurate. So you have to understand in great depth how to use the uh, libraries. And if you're not knowledgeable as libraries, then you can uh, you, you kind of flounder around in there.